to be with you again. We are on a roll now, and we're going to keep going for the next uh, several weeks uh, here, probably five, I think, in a row, which um, is wonderful that we get to continue to come back and meet with each other. But I hope you gals wore your trench coats and brought your magnifying glass because we are out to solve a mystery today. Who of you ever wondered who Melchizedek was in the Bible? Okay, me too, okay? (laughs) And we've read this, how many times we've heard this name, but yet for me, and I don't know for you, this time around, for me, probably because I'm teaching it to you, and I taught you last week that in the Word of God, we read it, write it, speak it, and live it. And you cannot speak it and live it until you receive it, and you got it, and you can repeat it, right? So I feel like, obviously, as a teacher, I got to know this. I have to know what I believe to be able to teach it to you. So I had what I call an aha or a light bulb moment this week. Did anybody else? Okay. I hope. Okay, well, maybe you'll have your light bulb moment when I'm done. Praise God. Hopefully you will. (laughs) Because I never really quite understood this mysterious man. And so I thought, well, let's, um, you know, let's solve this mystery. Let's look at all of these amazing clues in the Word of God. There's only a few of them. But we'll take that and we will be able to decipher who this man is. Is it a real man? Uh, We're going to find out. So anyways, if you're like me, you like to put clues together. Who who doesn't like a good mystery? Does anybody just love mysteries? Okay, I, I, I like that. I mean, Nancy Drew, and then, you know, you, there's so many great little mystery shows out there, but which of us doesn't like to solve a mystery? My favorite board game when my kids were growing up was Clue. Anyone else? Clue. Okay. So it was, you know, Colonel Mustard in the um, drawing room, whatever, the bill room, and I can't remember any of the rooms. Dining room, I'm sure that was one, with the candlestick or whatever. So we like to figure out who, um, you know, is behind the mystery. Today, we will seek to solve this mystery, not of a bad guy, but of a good guy. And uh, this mysterious man, Melchizedek. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and will you join me in prayer? Lord, we do love you and praise you and thank you that we do on occasion have those aha light bulb moments in the word of God where we are just amazed and in awe and and didn't know. And, And I love, Lord, that the word of God is alive and powerful and we can be uh, walking with the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years, and still we have those aha moments in the Word of God. So thank you for that this week. And we do pray that if the light bulb have not gone on yet with some of these ladies, that it will by the time we're done, and that you will allow your Word to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we first see this uh, character, this man, Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, verses 17 through 24, and then we see him again in Psalm 110.4, and then in our scripture today, and that is it in the entire Bible. So not very many mentions of this mysterious man. That's why we really need to do some homework this week to figure out who this is, why he's mentioned, the purpose for him even being in the scriptures. And let me tell you, he has a huge purpose in the scriptures. So as we begin to figure out who this mysterious man really is, we must remember that the book of Hebrews has been the building block. From the very beginning, we've been building from chapter 1 on now to chapter 7, been building to get to the place where we are today Does anybody remember what we're building upon? We started in the first week, and we said something, and every week we've been uh, reiterating it. I'm going to give you a clue. It's the title of our Bible study. What is it? (laughs) All right. Jesus is better. So this week, we are going to revisit. We left it for a couple weeks because the author really wanted to 
take some time to exhort the readers here because they were dull of hearing. But now he goes back to that which we started from, which is Jesus is better. Jesus better is better than anyone or anything. We learn he's better than the angels. He's better than the law. And this week we're going to see that he is better than the Levitical priesthood. You see, the Jewish nation was accustomed to the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. This tribe was chosen by God to serve in the tabernacle. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, this past Wednesday night, you know that we've been studying or we began studying through the tabernacle, how each piece of the furniture inside the tabernacle points to who? Jesus. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. If you haven't gathered yet, the whole Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament points to Jesus Christ. And here again in our scripture today, we're going to see that very thing. It's fascinating. But Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest appointed by God. And his descendants then would continue on to serve as priests as well. One of the requirements of the priesthood was that you must be from the tribe of Levi. In addition to that, no priest could be king and no king could be priest. As we seek to solve this mystery, we must look at four main clues for our evidence. If you're taking notes, we'll look at past history. Then, number two, the position that this man held. Three, the prerequisites that he met. And fourth, the preeminence that he had. We will not only learn today who this mysterious man is, but we'll also learn that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to that of Aaron because of the order of Melchizedek, and that is superior, we're going to learn, to the order of Levi. One thing that we do know about our great God, don't we, is that he is a God of order. He desires that our lives be in order and that he be the head. He desires that our marriages be in order and that he be the head and that we submit to that order in our marriages, that our uh, families be in order, and of course, that the church also be in order, submitting to Christ as the head. Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 now will introduce us to the fact that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because Jesus' priesthood, like that of Melchizedek, is appear in that. Chapter 7 will tell us this week in order. Chapter 8 next week in covenant. Chapter 9, the following in sanctuary. And finally in chapter 10 in sanctuary. So we're going to look at all of these different aspects, why Jesus' priesthood is better. Let's take a look. Beginning in verse uh, 19 of chapter 6, though. Let's go back because remember what I told you last week, that this was a letter. And when we read a letter, we read it in its entirety. We don't stop and, and you know, cut it up. So we're going to start reading chapter uh, 6, verse 19 first. One of these great scriptures that we should all have highlighted in our Bibles. It says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Continuing on in chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first beginning being translated king of righteousness, and then also Salem meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually." We first read of this man, uh, Melchizedek, back in Hebrews 5, but due to the dullness of hearing on the part of the readers, as I said, the author of this letter pauses for two chapters. 
to begin to exhort in chapters 5 and 6 the readers because of their dullness of hearing. And last week we talked about how they were still babes and they should be teachers, but they um, were still back in learning the ABCs of Christianity. And so he had to sort of bring them up to speed and, and prepare them for what they were about to partake of. And so he took two chapters or part of the letter to do that. So Paul did give the letter, the readers of the letter a strong exhortation, and he hoped that really it would awaken them um, for what he was about to share with them. So when studying through the Bible, there are times when we'll come across what is called biblical typology. And typology is a special kind of symbolism found in the scriptures. A symbol, of course, is something that represents something else. So within the Bible, we discover persons or things that are types of Christ, the typology of Christ. So here within our study today, we have yet another Old Testament type of Jesus Christ that is fulfilled in this New Testament name, Melchizedek. We must remember that the Jewish readers who had professed Jesus Christ as their Savior were, as we said last week and the week before, being tempted to abandon their faith because of the persecution that they were under. Therefore, the writer is seeking to convince them to break with their system that was full of rituals that they had, you know, set, their forefathers had set for them. Uh, centuries before to break that system and to take this new system that he was about to share with them. So essentially, he's saying to them that the religious system that they had been partaking of for 1,400 years, full of rituals and rules, uh, was now replaced with a better way. So he wants his readers to understand that Jesus is not only like the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, but he's different in order altogether. And because of that, he is better, which we've said from the beginning. He's a better high priest than any of them before in the old system. There is only one hope for sinners like us. We must have a faithful high priest who will as we'll see today, and who is able to intercede for us and who currently intercedes for us and forever intercedes for us. And only Jesus Christ, the eternal, is superior to any other priest. We'll learn that today. He's the only one that's able to give us hope for eternal salvation. So as we learned last week, we can be secure in that very thing, that we have uh, eternal hope, that we're secure in eternal salvation, that we are anchored um, to the Lord and on our way to heaven. So as we begin chapter 7, we will discover why this man, Melchizedek, serves as a type or a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And the first clue that we have received, that we get here today, is, as I said, we will look at past history, past historical evidence to prove that Jesus is better, and that this man, Melchizedek, is a typology of Jesus Christ. So to be able to do that, we do need to flip back to Genesis 14. So would you do that? Flip back to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis 14. It's only one verse, but we want to make sure that we look at this in the scriptures together. Genesis 14 is the only historic mention of Melchizedek that we're given in the Old Testament. And by this time in the story, in the life of Abraham, Abraham had separated himself from his nephew Lot. Lot had decided to move toward the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember, while Abraham went towards the city of Canaan. And during that time, a war broke out, and Lot and his family were taken captive. Abraham decided to rally 318 members of his household, and he set out to rescue Lot. 
The mission was successful, we're told in Scripture, and Abraham and his servants returned with Lot and his family as well as the spoil from the victory. As they were making their way home, Abraham and his company were met by this man, Melchizedek, verse 18 tells us. That's what we'll pick up in Genesis 14, 18. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemy into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. That's it. That's all it says regarding Melchizedek. Even though it is one scripture, one verse, there is so much in that one scripture. First of all, we see that he came out to meet Abraham. And then we're told that he brought bread and wine, which, by the way, were the same elements that Jesus would use to institute what? Communion. His body and his blood. Next, he pronounced a blessing upon Abraham in which Abraham responded by giving Melchizedek a tithe or a tenth of all of his spoils of victory. So who was it that met you when you are on the road to destruction? Jesus. Who was it that brought you bread and wine, otherwise known as his body and his blood? Jesus. Who was it that opened your eyes and blessed your life? Jesus. And who was it or is it that we are forever indebted to recognizing that everything that we have belongs to him. Jesus, fascinating, isn't it? Right there in Genesis, we can relate to this even now. Jesus Christ, what a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, how many times have we read this and just read right over it and not really looked at it with this perspective? Every once in a while, as I told you, I have those aha moments, and this was it right here. This was my light bulb moment this week. Like, whoa, never saw that in all of my times reading through the one-year Bible, reading through Genesis. In fact, I just read this scripture, like many of you, not too long ago, and didn't receive what I did this time through. Just another wonderful thing about the Word of God, that every time we go back to it, is it living and powerful and alive, and we get something different each time we read the Word of God. No matter how many times we read the same scripture, it is living and powerful. So, that is the last we hear of this man right here, Melchizedek, until a thousand years later. When we read of him, in, he's spoken of in Psalm 110, verse 4, which says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hey, that rhymes. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Of course, it was a song. But it is. It just, that was written. This is a prophecy to the writer of Hebrews, which points to the fulfillment of the life of Jesus Christ there in the Old Testament. So based on this past historical evidence, we can conclude that Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So now we move on to our second clue, which is based upon the position that this man held. So verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7 says, we're back in Hebrews, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of most high God, who met Abraham returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all for being translated king of righteousness and then also of Salem, meaning king of peace. So first we see that the position that this man, Melchizedek, held reveals that he was a type of Christ in the Old Testament for we read that he served as both king and priest. But I thought you said that that wasn't possible. It was not possible after the law was given. Now, you have to remember when this took place. 
This was before the law was given. So Melchizedek served a dual role of king and priest. But according to the Old Testament, the throne of the kingdom and the altar of the priest were separated from one another. According to the law, as we said, a priest could not serve as king, nor could a king serve as priest. Yet, as I said, here we read that before the law was given, that's before Moses received the Ten Commandments, there was one who served in this position as both king and priest. So we see that the writer is appealing to the Hebrew scriptures to substantiate this argument. So he's saying, in essence, that even the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament recognizes a priesthood that was distinct and separate from that of Aaron, which predates Aaron's priesthood by hundreds of years. So it's important for us to note that the name Melchizedek, as we're told here, means king of righteousness. And Jesus also is identified as the righteous one. 1 John 2.1 tells us, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the what? Righteous. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him you are in Christ, Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, just as Jesus is the king of righteousness. But we are told that he's also the king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Jesus is also the king of peace. In fact, Isaiah 9 calls him the what? Prince of peace. Ephesians 2.14 says, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Jesus again told his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, I give you, let not your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. So therefore, Melchizedek serves as a type of Jesus in the Old Testament because of the position he held. He was both king and priest. Now we move on to our third clue about this mysterious man in the fact that he met the prerequisites. Hebrews 7.3 tells us that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Notice that it says Melchizedek was without father and without mother. Now, obviously, Melchizedek was a real person, a real man, he had a father and mother, but the Old Testament does not give us record of his genealogy, meaning that he was a priest independent of his father or a successor. In other words, his priesthood was not dependent upon genealogy. Unlike the priesthood of Aaron, those were completely dependent upon their genealogy. They had to be part of the family of Levi to be a priest. The point is that Jesus, being our high priest, was not based upon the genealogical line either, but upon his calling and his position, as we see in this type of Christ, Melchizedek. So we see also that Melchizedek had no beginning or ending. Because there was no record of Melchizedek in the Bible, or in his genealogy, there was no beginning and no ending. In a typology sense, his ministry is unending. It is continuing. This also serves as a picture or a type of Jesus Christ. Unlike the Levitical priesthood, though, who had a start date and an end date, they didn't serve as priests forever. The point is that the writer is trying to share with the readers 
that Jesus is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the ending, the Alpha and the Omega. The ministry of our Lord Jesus does not stop. It continues on forever. And the writer is seeking to share with the reader that all of the clues that he gives regarding this mysterious man, Melchizedek, point to none other than, as we know, Jesus Christ there in the Old Testament. All of our clues about Melchizedek point to Jesus. Jesus was a king of righteousness. He was a king of peace. Obviously, he had no genealogy, and he had no end to his ministry. Likewise, this king in the Bible, priest in the Bible, Melchizedek, was a king of righteousness, a king of peace. He also had no genealogy and had no ending to his ministry. So we see Melchizedek as a type of Jesus Christ based upon his past history, as we discussed, the position that he held as king and priest, the prerequisite that he met, having no genealogy, no beginning, no ending, and fourth and finally, the preeminence that he had. So as we come to verses 4 through 10, we need to keep in mind that the writer is emphasizing that Melchizedek was better than Abraham. And if he could prove that Melchizedek was better than Abraham, that makes him then better than Levi, who was a descendant of Abraham. And if he could prove that he was better than Levi, that would mean that he was better than Aaron, which would make him, his priesthood, better than the priesthood of Levi. Are you following me? You still have your trench coats on and your magnifying glass out, or did you drop it? You're like, I'm done. <laughs> so Hebrews 7, 4 through 10 says, follow along. Now consider how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sins of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. What does all of that mean? Wow. Well, it's actually pretty simple when we look at a different uh, translation. So we're told that when Abraham returned from his victory over the kings who had defeated Sodom, he was given, we're told, a tenth, right? Or a tithe, a tenth of the spoil of Melchizedek. The only reason that you would give somebody a tithe or a tenth of what you had was if they were greater than you were. Abraham recognized and acknowledged that Melchizedek was king and priest, and he held a superior position to him, thus, thus he ties to them and tell Melchizedek, which would make Melchizedek greater than Abraham. That's a long way to say that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and so Abraham recognized that and tied to him. As we continue in verse 5, the writer draws a comparison between the Levitical priesthood and that of Melchizedek. It says, and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from the brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So according to the law, the sons of Levi who served as priests were required to receive tithes from the people. But the people that whom they received tithes from were really their family. That is, the Levites did not hold a position superior to them. It was a position that they had according to the law of God. So the writer continues and points out what makes Melchizedek 
preeminent over the sons of Levi. So he says in verse 6, but that he, speaking of Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not derived from them, that is, he did not come from Abraham or the tribes of Israel like Levi and the others, he received tithes from Abraham and blessed him. Okay, so Melchizedek was honored by Abraham, which means, as we said, that he was greater than Abraham. And Melchizedek then, in return, blessed Abraham. Verse 7 says, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser, who would be Abraham, is blessed by the better or the greater, who would be Melchizedek. So let's play some close attention here because here comes the really the surprise evidence for the preeminence of Melchizedek, not only over Abraham, but now he says over the descendants, including the Levites. So verse 8 tells us, here mortal men receive tithes. Here in verse 8 means under the Levitical system, men received tithes. But there, now he is looking back to Genesis 14, there Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14, received them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Verse 9 through 10 says, even Levi and the priest that they served in the temple who received tithes, pays tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he will was still in the loins of his father, Melchizedek. Okay, so this brings up a really good question. I know it's a little confusing, but this brings up a really good question. How could the order of Melchizedek be greater than the order of Levi? And how could Levi pay tithes to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 if he wasn't even born yet? Anybody wonder that? <laughs> if he wasn't born yet. Okay, somebody was like, I don't know, and I don't care. Well, um, you're going to learn a lot today. I hope you're taking notes and you're paying attention because you're going to get to go home and tell your husbands or somebody what you learned today, and they're going to be blown away at the knowledge that you have <laughs> in the scriptures. <laughs> okay, so how could Levi pay tithes to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 if Levi wasn't even born yet, the tribe wasn't even born yet? Okay, at this point, Abraham had no Isaac, and Isaac had no Jacob, and Jacob had no 12 sons, which were 12 tribes of Israel, right? That, that didn't even exist yet. The New Living Translation, I believe, helps us to understand this. That's why I said sometimes when you read a different translation, it's one word that pops out, and you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. The New Living Translation in Hebrews 7, 9 through 10, I believe we have it for you to look at, says, for although Levi wasn't born yet, the, here's the word, seed, that's the key word, from which he came was in Abraham's loins when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. In other words, the Levitical priesthood was considered to have been present in the patriarch Abraham when Abraham acknowledged the superiority of Melchizedek by his voluntary willingness to tithe to him and then receive the blessing. Therefore, if Melchizedek was superior to Abraham and he was superior to Abraham's descendants, which would include the Levites, which weren't born yet, uh, this makes Melchizedek and his order better than the order of Aaron. And if Jesus came from the order of Melchizedek, who serves as a type of Christ in the Old Testament and was pointed to prophecy, then that makes Jesus better. This is a really in-depth way of saying what we said in the first five minutes of our study, which was what? Jesus is, <laughs> we could have just said that, and, and uh, most of you, like me, just believe it. Like, all right, I believe he's better, and I believe um, everything that the Word of God says, but, you know, sometimes we really just need to do some digging, and we need to see why. Why is he better? What is the proof that he's better? And if you're like me, I want to know who is this man, Melchizedek? I mean, I remember reading of him. Is he real or is he fake? Is he a Christophany? No, he's a typology. What is the difference anyways? So we're learning that today. This was a real man placed in scripture that was a king and was a priest 
and he was there for a purpose, all to point to Jesus. The fact that Jesus is better. And the writer, it's very significant in the book of Hebrews that because of these people were struggling uh, with going back to that which they came out of, the writer has to prove this. This is vital for the people during that day to understand. Now, for us, not quite so much. But for them, it was absolutely vital that they know that Jesus is better and that this man, Melchizedek, is in Scripture for a reason, and he didn't have any genealogy that could be traced back. He didn't have a beginning and end, that he was righteousness, he was peace, and it all points to Jesus. And the fact that that he was in the seed of Abraham, that the whole line would come out of Abraham, that was the point that, that all of this was trying to make. The word seed, loins, same word. Different translation. You following me? Good. Abraham's, um, excuse me, Hebrews um, 7.11 tells us that, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? If they could be saved through the Levitical priesthood, what reason will we have for Jesus to have come? He's pointing out that there is no way that the old covenant can save you. And there is purpose and reason uh, for a new covenant to, to come into the picture. And that is what the writer is trying to point out. In other words, if the ministry of Aaron and all of his descendants was sufficient to bring forgiveness of sins to people, then why would there be a prophecy in Psalm 110? So all of this Old Testament evidence for these people and for us, if you uh, ever really wanted to, to know why and understand the reason why the law was insufficient to save us, and I would venture to say for those who have come out of a religion that points to that, um, there's, a, there's a reason why we should know that it was insufficient, that the law can't save us. We needed to have Jesus come. He was the only sufficient one that could come and die and that we could find atonement and be reconciled to the Lord. So the answer is that we needed Jesus. I mean, really, is what the answer is. Therefore, the Old Testament priesthood under Aaron was not enough, is what the writer's trying to say. And then he says, there must be change. Something has to change. And that change is found only, we know, and they know now through Jesus Christ. Verse 12 tells us, for the priesthood being, here's the word, changed of necessity, there is also a change of law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from whom no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of whom tribe, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood after the order of Melchizedek replaced 
the priesthood after the order of Aaron. The reason for the replacement is that the blood of animals would not suffice. It wasn't sufficient. They couldn't atone for sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ could and did and does. The new covenant was substituted for the old covenant, Jesus' blood instead of the blood of animals. And even though Jesus didn't come from the priestly tribe of Levi, but from the royal tribe of Judah, he was still called to be our high priest and king. Jesus wasn't called, as verse 16 says, according to the fleshly commandment, but instead he was called according to, I love this, the power of an endless life. Jesus died and rose again, we know from the grave. This power displayed in the life and death of Jesus Christ, power that was not given to anyone else, and it was the power over death. This gives Jesus the right to continue on as high priest where all others died. Jesus did not. It's because of this, ladies, this overwhelming evidence that the writer then finishes this chapter with highlighting the greatness of Jesus as our high priest. Verse 20 says, his ministry comes with a surety or a guarantee in verse 20 and 22. It says, inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, For they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A surety is different than a warranty, right? A guarantee is different than a warranty in that a warranty is if something breaks, you can replace it, right? Jesus' ministry is guaranteed to last. It is a surety. This means that all of God's promises in the new covenant are guaranteed by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus guarantees to pay all of our debts that our sin have earned and ever will earn. But not only that, Jesus has um, a ministry, and his ministry is guaranteed, it's a surety, but with that guarantee comes eternity. We get eternal life. Verse 23 through 24 tells us, also there were many priests because there they were prevented by death from continuing. That means, obviously, they died. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. So Jesus ministers on behalf of us forever. He is, as we're told, unchangeable. And his ministry not only continues forever, but it comes with supernatural ability. It is surety, it provides eternity, and here we see it also in verse 25 and 26, provides supernatural ability. It says, is a scripture ever, um, every believer should have, I believe, highlighted here, underlining the Bible, and this is a precious promise to us. Therefore, verse 25, he is also able meaning he has the ability to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. As I said, this is a scripture that every believer should have highlighted in their Bible. This is a scripture that we go back to again and again. And I don't know about you, but I have quoted this scripture in prayer many times uh, regarding those people who I believe um, 
are very far from the Lord or those that we are praying for that we, you know, it would be impossible for them to come to the Lord or even those who have turned from the Lord. The fact that God's word is unchangeable and unshakable in the midst of a changing world means everything to us. Amen? It's everything to us. Because Jesus is able and ever-living, unchanging, he is able to completely and forever save those who are yet to be saved and those who are yet being saved. Jesus lives, we're told, to make intercession for us. Intercession means go-between. It's the go-between God and man we know is the man Christ Jesus. When we seek to intercede on someone's behalf and we're praying for somebody really, really diligently, we're interceding on their behalf, it is like we are the go-between. We're interceding between man and Jesus Christ. We, the Lord, allows us to partake of intercession, much like the Lord intercedes for us. We have that ability to intercede on behalf of others. This should encourage us today, ladies, that the Lord allows us to intercede, that he not only, as we're told, prays for us, he intercedes for us. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Any sinner, he's able to save. And yet, he is able to keep saved those who are being saved. Interesting, isn't it? He's able to save to the uttermost, or as we like to say, the guttermost. But he's able to keep saved those who are being saved as well. He continues that saving work in our life through the process of sanctification, which is becoming more and more like Jesus. He is making us, keeping us saved, making us more and more like him. Are you discouraged today? Did you come in a little discouraged today? Know that he is able, ladies. He is able to save those who are lost. He is able to keep saved those who are being saved and to continue transforming us into his very image. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that he's able to save the one that's like the Apostle Paul that we feel that is, there's no way that this person can get saved? Well, he tells us he is able to do it. And then he's able to keep saved those who are being saved as well. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, or better yet, the guttermost, those who come to God through him. He intercedes for us even now, we're told. For within Jesus' ministry, he is the guarantee that lasts for eternity, and it comes with supernatural ability that is completely perfected. It is completed perfectly. Verse 25 tells us, For such a high priest was fitting for us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as though the high priest to offer up sacrifices for, first for his own sin and then for the own people, for this he did once and for all when he offered himself. Of course, speaking of Jesus Christ. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses, but the word of oath which came, from, came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. No matter how devoted and obedient the priests of Aaron in that Levitical line were, they couldn't always meet the needs of the people. They were still men that were imperfect. But Jesus perfectly meets 
all of our needs. He became one of us. He was perfect, and he was sinless, and he was blameless. He is able to exercise a perfect ministry for his people, unlike the high priests. No Jewish priest could claim this distinction. While Jesus was on earth, he was a friend to publicans, and he was a friend to sinners. But his contact with them did not defile his character, nor did it defile his conduct. He had contact without contamination. He was not isolated, but he was separated. Today, he is separated from sinners because of his position. But he is not separated from believers, those people that he seeks to minister to. He is always, ladies, available at his throne room of grace. He alone is able to supply the grace and the mercy that we need at any time. We know that Jesus perfectly meets these requirements in Scripture and that this mysterious man, Melchizedek, was placed in Scripture to point us to Jesus Christ and to help these people these Hebrew Christians, in their walk with the Lord. They needed evidence, and the writer of Hebrew seeks to bring that overwhelming evidence, pointing back to the Old Testament to prove this very fact that Jesus is better. We can take off our trench coats and put down our magnifying glass because we have uncovered now the mystery of this man, Melchizedek. He was a type of Jesus in the Old Testament, one who held the position, the prerequisites, and the preeminence. And he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or all we ever think. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and praise you and thank you that your word is powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, always pointing us back to Jesus Christ and that he is better than anybody in our life, anything in our life. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, God, that it always points to you and reveals your preeminence, God, reveals that you are righteous, that you are peace, that you are God, that you are our king and our high priest, the one who constantly intercedes on our behalf. And we are so grateful for that today, Lord. We love you and we praise you and we ask that your hand would be on the remainder of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.